Well, please take a moment to look around and to greet one another real quickly. Very good. You may be seated. What is man? In some way or another, we have all been faced with this question over the past week and a half where we have been confronted with a blatant disregard for the sanctity of the life of a fellow human being. And we have been reminded of the pain and the struggle of racial tension that continues in our nation. And we've seen how this tension can erupt into looting and rioting. We have seen how, again, that history continues to bear out that those with authority so often are willing to use their power to impose their will, even if it means violating the dignity or life of others. Now, I am proud to be a part of a church who has consistently stood on the side of life and who has historically given witness to the sacred nature of human life from conception all the way to death. And today we are again confronted with another opportunity to speak forth the truth of God's Word that human life is not to be treated capriciously or callously. That the death of a human being cannot be ignored, it cannot be justified. But rather, every human being, regardless of age or ethnicity, has been created in the image of God and therefore... The life of every human being is to be treated with the greatest care and respect. It seems almost unnecessary to have to say that I personally stand opposed to the murder of George Floyd. But time and again, we have seen that when we remain silent to the most blatant of sins, it spreads like a cancer. And when the abuse of authority is not checked, that it finds more and more victims. And therefore, once again, it is imperative that Christians speak up and join our voices with the rising chorus that says, human life is sacred. And therefore, what happened to George Floyd was evil. Today, we continue our study of the Psalms with Psalm 8. I would invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Now, as you turn there, a little background on Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is structured around the appearance of the Hebrew term that is translated what or how. It can be translated either way. It begins the psalm and it ends the psalm and it is at the very center of the psalm. For it begins and ends with this phrase, how majestic is your name. And at the very center of the psalm, it says, what is man? The same word translated two different ways, but in the Hebrew, the same word. And by this structure, we see that the central question that is being asked is being asked about what is man? And that this question has to be answered in the context of who is the Lord? 
That is, we see by the structure of the psalm and by the repetition of the what-how term that to understand the nature of man, you must first understand the nature of God. For man was created in the image of God. It is the Lord's providence that we have come to Psalm 8 this morning for the question again on all of our hearts in some fashion is, what is man? It is the question that we must have answered if we would see true justice. It is the question that we must have answered if we would live in a more free and righteous society. It is the question whose answer we must have firmly fixed within our minds and within the laws and structures of our society. If we would see the end of racism. If we would see the end of rioting and looting. If we would see the end of senseless murders. If we would see the end of the abuse of authority, then we must know what man truly is. And what we will see in our psalm is that if we would know the true nature of man, we must first know the majesty of God. We must recognize the grace of God. And we must follow the mandate of God. So hear now the word of the Lord. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of Him, and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us pray. O Father God, we come to You now in this time. And we pray that You would teach us by Your Word and Spirit that You would so give to us Your Spirit that we might see what is so clearly presented in Your Word and that it might change our hearts, that we might follow after Christ. We pray this in His holy name. Amen. Again, Psalm 8 is wrapped around by this statement in verses 1 and 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name! In all the earth. Again, we see the distinction between the two types of Lord that we saw a few weeks ago in Psalm 110. So just to reiterate the point, you'll see the first time that Lord shows up there, it is in all caps. And that means that it is the covenant name of God, sometimes pronounced Yahweh. You see that in verses 1 and 9. The first Lord is in all caps. But the second Lord is not in all caps. And that means that the Hebrew word behind that Lord means something like a king 
or a master is the Hebrew word Adonai. And so again, we read, O Yahweh, our master. Our master. How majestic is your name. Now, I think that somewhat instinctively we know that the psalmist is not really asking a question here. But rather, he is using the word how to emphasize his point. To say that the name of the Lord is very majestic. It's super majestic. It is uber majestic. How majestic is your name, O Lord? You see, the majesty of the Lord is not small. It is not limited. The majesty, the glory, the power, the strength of the Lord is displayed across all of creation. Verse 3 makes this point. It says, look to the moon and to the stars, for they remind us of the beauty of the Lord. For they are reflections of the majesty of the one true great God. Over and over again, the Word of God is directing our attention to God's glory in the the world around us. Our eyes are naturally blinded to its presence, but God's word acts as lenses so that we can look through scripture and see what is truly there. The natural mind is blinded. It sees the stars and only perceives a speck of light, a ball of gas light years away. The natural man sees the moon as a mass of rock reflecting the light of the sun or worse, a divine body that controls the fortunes of men. But when we put on the glasses of God's word, our eyes are open to the reality, to the glory all around us, to the beauty and majesty that we perceive in the world is not merely a natural phenomenon, but rather is a testimony of the beauty and majesty of our great God. And when we see the glory of the Lord, we can say with the angels, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And so, to understand the majesty of God, we must see His glory reflected in nature. The second thing that we see about the majesty of God from this psalm is that it is displayed in His acts of salvation. Verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Again, we need the Word of God to help us see His majesty clearly because we would naturally think that a majestic, powerful God would be on the side of the powerful. But rather, what Psalm 8 is teaching us is that His strength is shown forth In weakness. In the weakness of humanity's most humble of people. Babies and infants are used not in a limited way to speak of small children only, but rather as a poetic way to speak of the the world's most vulnerable and weak. Particularly to speak of the nation of Israel that is described as one of the weakest on earth. Nevertheless, the Lord shows forth His majesty in overcoming the power of the mighty through the weakness of the humble. For it is through the praises of the humble that the Lord puts abusive power to shame. You see, He took humble Israel 
And he overcame powerful Egypt. He took humble shepherd boy David and overcame the power of prideful Saul. And the majesty and the glory of God was shown forth most clearly when the humble Lord Jesus Christ overcame the power of sin and Satan and death. When a dead man rose from the grave and ascended up into heaven. You see, the Lord does not display His majesty through the strength of man, but rather through His weakness and His humility, so that in our weakness, His strength might be shown forth. And if we would understand what it means to be human, we must know first the majesty of God in whose image We were created. We must know that His power and might are hidden to a blind world, but those who have been given eyes to see and grace to see behold His majesty all around us in His creation and in His redemption. And therefore, we honor those who are created in His image. So what is man? Well, again... That is what this psalm is seeking to answer. What is man? And it's seeking to answer in light of the Lord's majesty and also in the context of man's creation. It has been noted that Psalm 8 is a hemnic rendering of the creation of man narrative in Genesis chapter 1. And so in Genesis 1, we read these familiar words. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You see, at the very center and foundation of man is his relation to the majestic Lord. For man was created in the very image of God. Or as Psalm 8 says in verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Humanity is, by our very nature, the very most valuable and lovely of all of God's creations. Each of us, regardless of age, intelligence, athleticism, wealth, nationality, gender, or ethnicity, are reflections and bearers of the nature of God. And we must recognize the grace that God has bestowed upon each and every one of us. That He would be so kind and loving to form you after His own image. That He would crown you with glory and honor. It is all of grace. It is all of grace that we were created with such dignity. You did nothing that God would create you in His own image. It was His free choice to bestow grace upon humanity to make them in His image. And therefore, to mistreat, abuse, or violate a human being is a direct assault against the very glory and majesty and honor and grace of God. And yet, Psalm 8 addresses the question of man's nature not merely from the perspective of God's gracious creation, but also from the perspective of God's gracious redemption. For in verse 4, we read, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? 
You see, just as verses 1 and 9 use how to emphasize the Lord's glory, verse 4 uses the same word to emphasize man's need of grace, to emphasize his weakness. The answer to what is man must be answered in the context of what God has done for him. What is man that you, O majestic Lord, are mindful of him? And what is man that you care for him? God sees His glorious creation and He remembers them and He visits them with His care and with His grace. To understand the true nature of man, we must see Him as a recipient of God's redemptive grace. For it is to man that the Lord has come. It is human beings that the Father chose before the creation of the world to save. It is humanity that God the Son took upon Himself and visited us. It is God the Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ that we might receive this new life. You see, the nature of man is defined by the Lord's grace to make Him and His grace to save Him. What is man? Man is the recipient of God's grace. Man is the creature to which the Lord was joined in flesh and for which He poured out His blood to save, went into the grave to rescue, and rose from the dead to open up life eternal. How could we do anything but worship the Lord of glory and love our fellow man in light of such truth? If we have received such grace, how could we not show such grace and kindness towards one another? Or as John says in 1 John chapter 4, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. That is love. That is love defined. That God showed grace to us. We did not deserve it. We did not first love God. But God first loved us and initiated the relationship to come and visit us. To come and redeem us. And to offer His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. But if we stop there... We do not get a full picture of what the sacrifice for our sins should lead to. So then John says right on the heels of that in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God shows such grace to humanity, should we not show such grace to one another and love one another even as God has loved us? To answer the question, what is man? We must know that he is the recipient of God's creative and redemptive grace. And therefore, we must love one another. In Genesis chapter 4, we have recorded the first homicide. The first destruction of the image of God by man. Cain was jealous of his brother Abel. He was angry with his brother because the Lord regarded Abel's offering and not Cain's. And so evil overtook his heart and the word of God tells us that Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. This is what happens when we become blind to the majesty of the Lord and the grace of the Lord. Our works become evil 
And instead of executing our calling, we find ourselves executing one another. Yet if we would know what man is, we must know his calling or his work. Again, in the creation narrative, we see how closely these two concepts of nature and work are related. For we read in Genesis again, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, that he created him, them in his own image. We saw that. But then it goes, and God blessed them. And God said to them, see, God's giving them a mandate now right upon their creation. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, there is a calling to rule over the earth and its creatures. This is stated in verses 6 through 8 of our psalm. Look there and see how similar it is to what we just read in Genesis. Psalm 8, verse 6, it says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now, This calling or this mandate that the Lord has given to man is to be a ruler over his creation. To have dominion is not to dominate, it's not to abuse, it is to guard and it is to cultivate. It is to work to harness the creation towards fruitfulness and life. Man was given the task to be a royal representative to continue God's work of creation through caring for and for creating culture and technology, art and music, husbandry and agriculture, cuisine and architecture, education and exploration, and raising children and worshiping God. You see, humanity was given the task of overseeing this world as a good and righteous Lord under the Lordship of the one true God. That was our purpose. That was our mandate. That the image of God might be spread over the whole face of the earth. And that we would be a representative, an image of God over the whole creation. And each human being is called to bring his or her talents to this beautiful tapestry of dominion. To work and create within the realm of creation to the end that God might be glorified. That is your call. That is your purpose. To glorify God in this world. But sin has marred this call. For the fall of man introduced frustration and pain and death into this world. We were called to bring order and life, but by our sin, we have brought chaos and destruction. Now, when we dig a little deeper into the murder of Abel by Cain, we see that it was connected to this concept of calling or work. You see, Cain was a worker of the ground, a farmer. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Now both were engaging in the work that the Lord had called them to perform. It wasn't as though Cain was doing some job that he wasn't supposed to do and Abel was. But Abel presented the offering of his work with a proper heart of worship and Cain did not. For we read in the book of Hebrews, by 
faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. You see, to understand what man is, we must understand that man is an agent of God in this world called to work for His honor and His glory. And when we abandon this mandate to glorify God in our work, we abandon the purpose for which we were created in His image. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Cain was jealous of Abel because Cain had abandoned the purpose of his work to bring glory to God. And to take a life is the very opposite of what God had called us to do. For God had called us to spread the image of God over the whole face of the earth. But Cain destroyed that image. What is man? Well, the world has presented many different views on this question. The ancient pagans viewed man as the servile slaves of the gods created to fulfill their capricious appetites. The modern humanists have written in their humanist manifesto, quote, we can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. Nihilists say that man is nothing but a hunk of animate garbage. And Darwinists that man is the result of random mutations. Yet none of these visions of man give us any reason why we might honor and respect human life. None of these approaches tell us why it's evil to kill another human being. But the Word of God reveals to us the truth that the majestic Lord has created man in His image and has given Him the mandate to spread that image over the face of the earth for God's glory. But sadly, we have all been witness to the reality that Cain continues to rise up against Abel. Brothers continue to end each other's lives. We turn from our God-given mandate to spread life. Instead, we take it. For although George and Derek had different colored skin on the streets of Minneapolis, it was not just homicide that occurred, it was fratricide. It was a man suffocating his own brother. And therefore the blood of Abel calls out for justice. And yet, there is a better word to be spoken than the word that the blood of Abel calls forth. For through the blood of Abel, though the blood of Abel calls out for justice, the blood of Christ calls out for mercy. For the Lord Jesus came as our brother, offered his life that all who believe in him might not die, but might have everlasting life. This is the ultimate answer to murder and justice, to racism and violence. The witness of Christ's blood that man is so loved by God that He would send His Son to die for their sins. It is only through the blood of Christ that our eyes will be opened to truly see what man is. To truly love one another. We will all have different opinions on the question of how we move forward from this particular event. We'll have political and cultural biases that will lead us to different solutions to the problem. But Christian, let us not allow our political differences to cause us to remain silent when human life is taken. 
but rather let us give witness to the world that God so loved man that He created him in His image, that He graced him with life, that He sent His Son to die, so that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but shall have life everlasting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Father God, on this Trinity Sunday, we pray that You would open our eyes to have a more full view of Your glory and Your majesty, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, now and forevermore. We pray, O God, that our increased understanding and view of Your glory and Your majesty and love would cause us to love one another more. That we would see that every human being is created in the image of God. And that we, O God, would be used as agents to spread life and not death. That You might be honored. That You might be glorified. Send us forth, O God, proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name that we do pray. Amen.